Me and Jude were away at the Keswick Convention last week. I mentioned it. Um, we were leading the 19 to 24-year-olds. Um, it was awesome. They were all very trendy and very cool, but it was a real honor. We got Starbucks Cafe to ourselves to um, share God's word with them and spend some time with them. Uh, we asked them some questions every night. One of the questions uh, that we asked was, if you had five adjectives to describe your generation, what would they be? So I had to look at what an adjective was. I wasn't 100% sure. But, and and I, this was one of those questions that you ask. It's a bit open-ended. You're wondering where it's going to go. But they really warmed to it. Here's what they said. And sort of you're bearing in mind at this point, these are, these are Christian kids who've decided to come to a camp to learn more about God. So their answers aren't representative of the whole world. But they, are, they were insightful. So 19 to 24s on a camp. Five adjectives that describe your generation. Maybe you're thinking through what they might be just now. Individualistic. That was the first one. Kind of the way that the culture goes. You can kind of understand why you would be individualistic, can't you? Second one. So I, I'd got that one. That was about as far as I'd got. I thought that might come up. I know enough about social media and modern culture to get that. The next four blew me away and made me fear for my kids as they get older. Second one was entitled. Third one was, and wait for it, sexualized. Fourth one was lonely. Fifth one was lost. Maybe, you'd, maybe if you're in that age bracket, I'm looking around, we've got a few people who might be in that age demographic. Maybe you'd think differently, but it's just something to think about. There are different reasons for that. There are a plethora of different reasons for that. One of them, sort of born out of popular culture, would be music. Popular culture, music, has a massive influence on people. Think of artists, think of what they wear, think of their songs, think of their videos, think of their lyrics. They have this massive influence on society. Huge, underestimate it at your peril. A few quotes uh, that I read in the week. One that's attributed to Plato, but you've got to, I've learned the lesson from a bit at the front, you've got to dig around to make sure it's him. It's probably not him, but he said things very like it. So we can safely reference a guy called Andrew Fletcher, who was a Scottish writer, who said, Give me the songs of the nation, and it matters not who writes its laws. Give me the songs of the nations. It matters not who write its laws. And if Plato did say that, and he said something similar to that, I, I dug around enough to know that, think of the, the power of song or the influence that Plato thought that song had. Another quote that is definitely from Plato. I did my homework. Musical innovation is full of danger to the state, for when modes of music change, the laws change with them. It's massive pervading power of the tunes. And maybe you're thinking, I'm not sure whether that's the case or not. Remember back to uh, a fractured, racist, America in 66 with a, with a political system that was, and if you watched any documentaries about it, really struggling to make any impact. And then Bob Dylan pens the words, the times they are are changing. And all of a sudden, this song gets into the public consciousness. People start singing this song. This song's on the radio all the time. And America shuffles along a little bit towards equality, still struggling, of course, but shuffles along. Christmas 84, and uh, Michael Burke presents the new story of the famine in Ethiopia. And we are engaged, but probably quite passive. And then Midjua and Bob Geldof 
pen the words, feed the world, and we hear this tune, and we, even the tightest-fisted Yorkshireman digs into his pocket and pulls some money out. We are moved by song. It's got a massive, pervasive influence. And, but for the sake of the gospel, I thought I need to know what the current songs are. So I listened to the top 40. Now, I used to know what the top 40 was, and now I don't even know if there's even a top 40. And I couldn't even find the top 40. I had to like, get on the internet, and it had to do that thing where it knows what you're really asking for. Do you know when you ask the thing, how do I get the, the top 40 charts? And it sort of says, you want something like this. And so I started listening to the top 40, and then um, and I did that thing, actually, where so Jude was about the house, and so the Vimeo stuff starts coming up, and I listened to a guy called Drake. Hands up if you dig Drake. So, yeah, you're laughing at me listening to Drake, aren't you? It's funny, isn't it, in a sense? So Drake's on, the Vimeo video comes on, and Drake's walking about, and I thought we were on a march towards equality between men and women, and Drake's sort of saying this stuff, and the women, like I was going to say some of the lyrics, I'm not, I was going to even, I found myself going into dance mode, and the women are presenting themselves provocatively, shall we say that? They are, they are and, and as I, so I listened to a song after song after song, I thought I'm going to dig around, I need to know what the bass line is, because music is so pervasive, and sort of the worldly wisdom that comes out of this is, particularly for blokes, so starting with blokes, you're going to have to be more awesome, be more of a man, be more masculine, be more gangster, talk more rough about women. And if you're a woman, and this is not everything that this music genre is saying, be more sexy. Be more up for sex. Know that sex is a tool to be used. And I watched that seeing my kids going into the world, and I was like, man, this is not a new music rant. There's other forms of music out there. Just so I'm covering a broad spectrum, I listened to some other music from another genre, and I think it's the 60s, and I think it's a guy called Mongo Jerry who wrote a song called Summertime, right? Listen to this. This will, this blew my mind. This is the, I was listening to Drake, and I was thinking, man, this guy's got problems. You know, he's, he's, he needs to sort himself out, and he needs to shift his life up a gear. But then I listened to Mongo Jerry from the 60s, and I was just blown away. In the summer, you know this song, In the Summertime? In the summertime, I bet you don't know what the lyrics are, maybe you do. In the summertime, when the weather is fine, we're all right so far. You can stretch right up and touch the sky. I'm with you, Mongo. So far, I'm with you. In the summertime, you got women. You got women on your mind. All right, okay. So I think there's more going on, Mongo, than just women. But if you're in that place, that's fine. You're in that place. If her, listen to this, will blow you away. I could not believe this. If her daddy's rich... Take her out for a meal. Anyone know what's coming? This is shocking. If her daddy's poor, do what you feel. Say that again. If her daddy's rich, take her out for a meal. If you come across a lady who's not quite so well off, do whatever you want with her. Then the next line, which almost makes it, which compounds it even more, have a drink, have a drive, go around and see what you can find. That just blew me away. So you've got this guy who's happily drinking alcohol looking around for women who are poor to do whatever he wants with them. Just unbelievable lyrics. And when you... Now, so I've, 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 given a bit of a, I've given a biased view of the musical world that's out there. But if you sort of... As I tried to do... I, I mean, I, I feel like I did enough research. I heard enough to know that, man, this is... This is a pervasive, dark, tricky influence on the world. No wonder that the 19 to 24s are a bit confused. No, no wonder, wonder we've got like moral struggle in the world. No, no wonder there's unrest 
in society. And you can, as you sort of trace the line of music, I mean, there's some beautiful songs out there calling us to do awesome stuff. And it's almost like there's this wrestling match going on to where the moral line is. The Apostle Paul sees this world and he gives some advice into it. It's in Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. Would you read with me to see what he says? It's going to pop up on the screen. It's not Psalm 48, it's Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. Be very careful then. And what you've got to remember with this, with this letter is this is, his, this is his baby. This is the church at Ephesus. You read through Acts, he loves this church. He's desperate for these people to do well. He's desperate for these people to go on. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. So you could think at that moment, and you've got to be careful, you can, if you're a literal reader of the Bible, you could take it this way, well, I can't have a drink, and I need to go around singing at people. That's how the church is going to prosper. I need to lock up the drinks cabinet, and I need to walk around, and maybe some of you are thinking, that's, what, that's my life, this is what I do. But I would just, and my mind plays out this way, but I, and this is definitely how I read this when I was a kid, and it's almost enough to put you off church. Can you imagine, do we need that? Can you imagine like the eldership thinking, let's just, let's just wander around and sing at people? Can you imagine how that would be received among the congregation if I just wandered up to you one Sunday afternoon and said, blessed be your name, or hallelujah, and I started, and then, and you were like, Ash, you need to drop that. I don't, I don't want that in my life. In fact, if you sing at me again, I'm not coming. And then we come back full eldership and we sing at you. You don't want that in your life. Paul is not saying that. Paul sees, and this is, this is something that I think we have a different perspective on from the world, that the Bible is very helpful in reminding us that the world is darker than we think. We look at the world sometimes and we think it's got a few bad eggs in it. That's kind of the prevailing wisdom. Everyone's good. There's a few bad eggs. The Bible tells us over again, the world is dark. And Paul says, you're going to need a soundtrack. You're going to need a tune that's going to get you through the amount of stuff, he says to this church at Ephesus, under the power of the Holy Spirit, I know what is coming your way. The amount, and this is, this is before they've got internet and before they've got Spotify and before you've got access to all these tunes. He looks at this church at Ephesus and he says, you're going to need, you're going to need a better tune. Man alive, you're going to need a tune to get you through this. Don't go and sing at each other, but you're going to need another tune. So we're going to look at Psalm 48 and I'm just going to rake out three things. And these are th- these are three things that, that we really ought to remember, but that we forget. And that's really, that's the sermon. So there's 10 or 15 minutes to go. Three things that we really ought to remember, but we forget. So I'm going to give you a little bit of context for Psalm 48 just now. Maybe you can just be aware of it up on the screen. It's a psalm about Zion, God's city. So you've got to have the context, when it's a psalm about God's city, you, you do the history and you remember that God has placed these people here, that he has, he has established them there. He promised Abraham he's going to have a people. He promised Moses, he says, come and worship me in the desert. He looks at David and he says, I'm going to put you on a city on a hill and I'm going to establish myself there. This is the setting for the psalm. So you've got, I'll walk about, you've, you've got the people on the hill over here. This is the, this is the context. 
People on the hill worshiping God's, God's people in his place under his promises. Temple there, God's dwelling with them, should be all right. On the horizon, and I'm not 100% certain about this. I did a bit of digging, and the cleverest people out there say that this is the story. This is the context to the psalm. The Assyrian Empire are coming. They are coming in their hundreds of thousands. Maybe you've seen films about the empires that are knocking about at these times. They come in hordes. They didn't just send bombs over to win battles in these days. They just came en masse. It's a bit like pre-World War II for the home front in Britain when the Germans and the Nazis in Germany were just all across the home front there looking in on us and everyone's kind of terrified, just, just waiting for whatever's going to come their way. And maybe runners came back and said, there's thousands of them. We're going to get destroyed. There's a huge army of people. Then what happens in this psalm from Israel's perspective, they don't come. They see them all there. They see them en masse. They see them with arrows and shields and swords, and they do not come. So I did a bit of digging around the history, and the history says that Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. He never, took, he never took Jerusalem at this time. I did a bit of biblical digging around, and I found in Isaiah, and so it, I'll give you the reference if you want to check it out yourself. Isaiah 37 Verse 33 to 36, listen to this. this. This records what happens at this time. This is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian now, I'm going to need you to do what you want to do with that story. So I see it in the Bible, and I think, well, that's what happened. This Assyrian army, who it reads could have wiped the floor with Jerusalem, ran back away, and what the people of God did was write a psalm in excitement. Here's what they did. Here's what they said. Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise, in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful. In its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there. Pain like that of a woman in labor. You destroyed them like the ships of Tarshish, shattered by an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord Almighty. So, and what happens in this, in this moment is kind of beautiful. You can, almost, as, you can almost, as the sons of Korah pen this, you can almost see them looking back at their city. And they make some very base praise. And as John read it out to us, I thought it's nice that that's in a Yorkshire accent. These are the kind of things a Yorkshireman would appreciate about a city. And it needs a poet to make it sound a little bit better. Look at what it says there. Beautiful in its loftiness. That's, if you're a Yorkshireman, you're saying, it's right high up. They're never going to get us because it's right high up. Something like that. That's what you're going to And I've got even, in the moment, I've got more Yorkshire. Brilliant. Love it. It's beautiful in its loftiness. That's what they look back and they go, they're never going to get us because it's up there. How are they going to? Look what God's done for us. He's given us a city that's lofty. Then they get even more Yorkshire. If you've got a KJV or other versions of the Bible, it, it brought joy to my heart. It couldn't, couldn't have sounded more northern and more Yorkshire. It says, like the heights of Zaphon in the NIV. In the other versions, it says, in the far north. So cultures of this time would, would, would say 
God dwells here. So the Canaanites had a mountain that they described just as the far north. That's what Zephon was. And they said, God's here because it's, you can't get any more northern than this. The Greeks did something similar with Olympus. It's very northern, so God's here. And the Israelites are saying, no, you've got it wrong. This, and I love this idea, this is the north. We say that a lot, do we? This, oh, that's not north. This is north. They say that. This is the north. So they look back at their city with pride, and they see the journey that God's done, but they get to something really crucial. They see, and I guess as they look at their city, they're thinking, well, maybe this is why, they, this is why they, we defeated them. But they see their city, and they look around, and they say, no, it can't be that. It's because God is here. God is in her citadels. God is in her, God is in her fortresses. God has looked after them because God is here and is real. And so they write some beautiful poetry. They talk about the ships of Tarshish, just massive ships that you think, we're never going to defeat these ships. These are going to destroy us, and they are smashed to bits. They talk about an army that's rushing forward that just has to stop because it's like a woman in labor. Like They really should destroy them but they're not going to. And you realize in this moment that Israel's triumph at this point is not through her hard, high, thick Yorkshire walls. And it's a beautiful moment of realization and it takes them to praise. It's because God is there and he's real. We've heard about this God. We've heard about the God of the Exodus. We've heard our fathers and our grandfathers tell us story after story about him. And now we have seen him And we know that he is real. It should send shivers down your spine. It should take you to praise. You might be thinking, visiting this church and observing this church, and there's a sense in which this is true, and this is part of the story, that strategy and thinking and planning has taken us to a place where we've got a church here in Escape. That's part of the story. It's part of what God's done. The reason that there is a church here is because God is real and we stand in awe of him. I don't know if you've ever wondered what you're doing when you, when you have a quiet time on your own, when you sit down, just open up your Bible. You maybe get some sort of calm, peace. Maybe it's part of a daily routine that you go, keep going back to your Bible and like, oh, that was nice. Nice to, to look into the Bible. I wonder why that is. Do you know what you're doing in those moments? You're trying to draw near to the God who threw the stars into space. You're asking him to come to where you are. When we gather here as his people now, where two or three gather together in his name, there he is with us. The God who originated the universe, the God who holds it all together, the God who will wrap it up at the end, comes here to be with us. This God is real, and it should send shivers down your spine. Here's my, my words of wisdom if you've been a Christian for a while. Don't lose your awe of that God. So, so often our, what faith is becomes like the ritual of planning and organizing and attending church and praying at this point of the day. And that's all part of the story. That's all helpful. But don't in that think that that is all it is. There is a spine-tingling, beautiful, mysterious, wonderful God behind it all that is real. First time I went to uh, Ellen Road, my dad took me. Um, I, th- I think we might have even sneaked in. I don't even know if he can do that, but I think that's, that's, that's how my memory serves it. He put me on his shoulders, and I, the first time I saw off the football pitch, 
I was just like, man, this is, I was in awe. I looked around it, and I just, I could not believe it. Uh, Leeds scored. It was a guy called Gordon Strachan's debut. That's isolating a lot of people. Only one or two people remember that. My dad threw me up in the air, and everybody surged forward, and I lost him. I never saw him again, but the awe, I didn't. It was, I was terrified for a while, but the awe was spectacular. And I went week after week after week after this, hoping for that moment again. And, and they all was there and re- revisited occasionally, but so often it was just something I did to fill my time. Some of the awe had gone. I was driving along the A66 uh, recently. I don't know if you know the A66. And I was in this spot where I had the kind of stresses of the world on my shoulders. Do you ever get, I got, just got myself into this just stupid place where I was worried about this, annoyed about this, and I had all this weight on my mind, and I did something that was a little bit unsafe, but there was a parking bay just on the left, and I sort of zoomed in there, and if you're going along the A66, you get to a point where sort of the landscape opens up, there's this beautiful big valley, the sun was just dropping down, and I got to this point, and I, and I saw this, and I got out of the car, and I was aware of all my stresses and all my strains, and yet I was aware that somewhere in my soul I had faith in the guy who made all that. And I'm not saying that all my stresses and strains went away, but I got a healthy perspective. I was like, man, the God who, who just dreamt that up, who decided that would be beautiful and put me in it, he exists somewhere within me. He is real. And I got shivers down my spine, and I thought, well, I have got troubles, and I have got dramas, and I have got problems, but they are nothing because I have him who does this. One of the things that Psalm does, the first thing it does is it gives us a sense of the awe of God. Two more things that it does, and I'll be, I will be sharpish. Second thing that it does, that we are reminded of that we forget, we're, remi- we're reminded that God saved us, and we should dwell on his love. Just going to read a little bit more text. Let's see what these people do when, when they realize that God has saved them. It's not it's not what we do, I think. Sometimes when we have these moments in our lives where God saves us miraculously or does something where we go, I'm sure that was God, we just we forget it. You ever had that happen in your life? God, you've been like, right, I'm pretty sure that was God. Pretty sure that's what he's done. He's got me through this. I was not well or I was this or I was that. And then we just kind of move on and forget about it. Look at what the Psalms calls us to. This is what the people do after God has preserved them. Within your temple, O oh God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villagers are glad because of her judgments. Walk about Zion, go round her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. I don't know how your mind works. I don't know how how well you dwell on things. I, I think the mind's an incredible thing, and it's incredible the rubbish that we can dwell on. Do you know what I mean? The, the things that, that can occupy our mind. Sometimes Jude's on Pinterest, and I, and I just look over her shoulder, and I just watch her flick through outfits, or like, yeah, it's ridiculous. And I'm just like, um, let's go on this crazy wonder for half an hour, just looking at different outfits. And I'm like, yeah, this is a good use of my time, just flicking through. You ever look on the internet and just browse, just watch just watch a funny video and think, that's quite a funny video, let's watch another one. And then you just, like an hour of your life is gone. It's incredible that we can do this, isn't it? Sometimes we dwell on, this is another thing that I dwell on, I'm going to fess up, like people that just rub you up the wrong way. 
Do you ever do that? Just like, oh, this person annoys me. And you spend half an hour just like, just, and you stay there just like getting angry at this person. One more thing I dwell on. I'm fessing up again because I want to engage you. If I had loads of money, I'd do that. And I'm a pastor. I do that every, yeah, I do that every now and again. I just think, oh, if I got loads of money, and then I just, my mind just goes, oh, I'd do this. Or I do that. I'm, I'm just happy for my mind to wander to these places. And I thought to myself, as I'm sort of working this stuff out, I wonder if it's possible, in fact, it may even be plausible, that we can go through our whole life as Christians, reach a ripe old age, and we've never stopped to dwell on the love of God. I think that's possible. Should it be possible? We've just never gone, I'm going to just give this time over to thinking about God. Look at what these people do when they see that God has provided them with victory. They say, go and see the towers. Go and walk around Jerusalem. Go and see the citadels. Go and see the ramparts. Take a tour of what God has done. That's what he says. Go and have a good look around. Dwell on it. Take some time over it. Got a, a guy at Cass, Jesse Senelefeo, and he was interviewed recently, and he's always smiling, is Jesse. Always. Almost, you know, just always like, just happy to be alive. And the interviewer goes, well, why are you smiling? all the time, and he said, I get up every morning, and I think about the good things that God has done. Like, I wanted it to be something really complicated. He just says, I get up, and I think of three or four things that God's done, three or four promises that he's kept in my life, air that I can breathe, the fact that I end up in eternity with him, provisions every day that I need. I think on these things, and I'm happy. Do you know what he does, Jesse? He takes a walk around the city every morning, has a look around at how God has provided for him. The next thing that these people do is they meditate. This is a word that I think has lost a bit of its direction, certainly its biblical direction. Meditate now, I think, as far as I know, it's got more of a sense of, I'm going to empty my mind of stuff. Just going just to let it all drift away. And the biblical intention behind the word is not that you empty your mind, but that you fill it up, but that you fill it up with good stuff. And if you dig around at the, the meaning of the word, it's like, it's the idea of, and I love this, it's like a, a a cow chewing the cud. So a cow picks up a bit of grass, chews it over, and if you ever watch a cow, it can seem quite happy just to keep chewing over and over again for a long time. It lets it go down into his stomach, and then it leaves it there, perhaps for a while, and then it's like, actually, I could do with a bit more nutrition from that grass. I'm just going to, and I don't know what the word is, but bring it back. Not, not very pleasant, is it? But bring, brings it back, and then chew on it some more. That's the idea behind meditation. I'm just going to, and God encourages them here, or God's people go to a place where they just dwell on his hesed love. They dwell on his unfailing love. They just say, right, we see what's happened. We're going to go in the temple, and we are just going to chew this over and over and over and over. I wonder what place you get to mentally when you spend all your time remembering that God looks after you, that you are a child of God. There's not there's not a whole heap of literal instructions that God gives the New Testament church. There's not many. There's lots of, lots of paradigms and, and patterns for how we, should, how we should live. But in terms of actual, you should definitely do this. There's not many. But there is one. Communion. He says, would you stop? Would you just stop and remember my unfailing love? Would you just do that? Would you make that part of your habit? Would you make that part of your life? Would you just take time out? And I guess this is how we see it. He says to us, would you just look at that cross? Would you just remember that, that you are far away from me, that the human race kind of chose a way of sin, and that I loved you so much that I made a way back 
before you? Would you dwell on that? Would that be part of your story every day? Would you walk around that story? Would you revisit that story over and over again? Two things so far. Let's be in awe of him that the Psalms do, that they keep us on. Would you be in awe of him? And would you dwell on his love? And the third thing, and the third thing, and it's very brief, is kind of a fallout of the first two things. If you, if you, get, if you experience the reality of him, if you, if you dwell on him, then you're going to make him known. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting thing because this is the, this is the hard thing about if you've been a Christian a few years, you'll have come to a point in your life where you're like, oh, I really should share my faith here. Or I really should impart some Christian wisdom here. You know, you, you get all like that about it. And you think, oh, but that's so hard. The world doesn't want me to do that. And you, when you read it in this sense, it's kind of like we're getting it the wrong way around. It, it always kind of feels like we really ought to tell others. But the way around it actually is if, if this is real, if God's real, then this just kind of is going to happen. If God's a reality for you, this is kind of going to happen. Look at what they write. Like your name, O oh God. Your praises reach the end of the earth. Just God's name. It's gonna, the reality of God on the earth is it that it's going to go places. Mount Zion rejoices and the villagers around about are glad. When the people are obeying God's word, then the fallout of that is that the villagers around about are glad. When you walk around the citadels, you will tell the next generation. What's he saying is just, you're going to walk around, you're going to see what God's done, and it's just going to be, you're going to be so overwhelmed with it, you're going to be so impressed with it that you're just going to tell people. That is the way around that it works. When you've experienced God, when you've taken time to dwell on him, you're not going to have to worry so much about the words that are going to need to come out of your mouth. They're just going to fall out of your mouth. You're almost not going to be able to help yourself. And even as I, even as I say these words, I'm aware that the reality of life is that you still stand next to the guy and you think, how on earth am I going to tell you about Jesus. Well, I guess the way you're going to tell him about Jesus is that you're going to go back and try and spend some time being in awe of him. You're going to dwell with him and you're going to wait for the words to fall out. It's a little bit the same thing when Jesus gives the Great Commission. You know the Great Commission when Jesus says, go into all the world. And you read that and you think, oh, his disciples just must have been terrified. It's the thing you've got to do. I've got to go into all the, all the world. That's big. I've got to go and do that. And we think of it as the chore, don't we? We think of it as, like, this is Christianity being sent. And we kind of get it the wrong way around. And we, 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 I do this. We miss the verse that comes before it, which says, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go into all the earth. He's saying, because I'm God, because I'm here, and I'm real, we've really, all of us, got no option. If it's the reality, then we've kind of got to go. There's nothing else for it. And as the disciples pick up this baton. A few weeks later, the Holy Spirit comes. The disciples disperse. And then the languages come upon the apostles and this message spreads and spreads and spreads. So today you look around and the church is growing in Iran and China and even to the ends of the earth. And God's people are being blessed. We need to be in awe of him, which we forget. We need to dwell on his love and we need to make him known. The soundtrack that the world produces is a good one. I, I like it. There's good music out there, but it's not enough. The world is fine. It's pretty exciting. There's things that are going to blow your mind out there, things that men have created, but don't lose your awe for God. There's lots of things that are worth thinking about. 
But nothing is as important as knowing that you're a loved child of God. You need to stop to dwell on him. And when we rest in that, we become people that will bless others. And this, this is the kind of tune that will change the world.